Good morning, everybody. Welcome. And uh, this is July 4th coming up tomorrow, right? Is today the third? Am I right? Yeah. Um, we were on vacation this past week and got home last night about 3.30 in the morning. So it's a long story I won't go into. <laughs> but um, the Lord is good. And we're here and we're celebrating him. And, uh, you know, Thankfully, I had my message prepared, so that was good. I was responsible. I didn't have to, like, do last-minute stuff, so praise God for that. And i um, very thankful to get away, got away with our extended family, my wife's extended family, our grandbaby, our new grandbaby, and got to be a good, just hold a baby all week. It was fun. So, um, and read books. I read five, almost six books. So that's my vacation is I just sit on the beach and read, and then I throw some football and some Frisbee and jump in the ocean, and then I read some more, and then I hold a baby and read. So that's vacation to me. It's very enjoyable, actually. So I got to catch up on a bunch of reading and some good stuff. So, um, But anyway, I don't know where, where you're at. I mean, it's kind of that time of year when we think about independence and what that means. What does it mean for our lives that we get to live in a place that most of the rest of the world doesn't have what we have, the freedom to travel like we did, the freedom to have people serve you and, and do that typically morally. They're not trying to kill you, you know, and, and that can be, we can take that for granted if we're not careful. Um, and we have to recognize that for some reason God put us here and what does he want us to do with the life he's given us where he's given it to us. Um, and this message that I'm going to speak this morning because we're going to start the book of Zephaniah next week is a message that a number of months ago I was just reading, spending some time with the Lord and came across this passage of scripture and it just hit me in a different way. And I thought, you know, I want to share this with the church at some point if the Lord allows um, outside of our series. And so that's how this message came about. Um, and the, the title of this message is really radical. It, it's what we all say we long for, but none of us are willing to actually do it. We just won't. I'm just being honest. And, and it's actually... I think most of us think it's impossible to do, which I would argue it is impossible without Christ and without God in your life to do this. And that's this, a quiet life. A quiet life. Like the reason we can live the lives we live is because somebody paid the price in our place. We're going to Celebrate communion, which is the ultimate act of God sending his son. It was the original plan since the foundation of the earth was that God is a just God. He's a loving God. And so he had to make love and justice come upon himself because no one else could pay the price for his unbelievable justice. And no one was good enough to be loving enough to pay the love that needed to be paid for us. It was the plan from the beginning, right? And he created Adam and Eve. He put them in a garden and he said, look. The entire earth is yours. There's no problems. There's no issues. I want you to live a quiet life. There's just one thing I don't want you to do. It's that. And Adam and Eve paid attention to the noise. Satan came along, brought some noise in, then paid attention in their heads to the noise and the questions he was asking. And before long, they got an entirely different life, a messy life, a disastrous life because they just wouldn't listen to God. We're in the same boat today. You know, we, we, we say we're independent, but the problem is if everybody's independent, 
right, and we're all doing our own thing, then nobody dies for one another so that people can be free because there is no freedom without people giving their lives for one another. It's not possible. Because if I'm asking you to to help me be free and I'm not willing to lay down my life for you, then what I'm doing is putting myself in the position of God and I'm not living that quiet, surrendered life that we'll look at in a minute, Jesus himself modeled and did. And if you're honest, and if I'm honest, our entire world is built on wanting to have a loud life. Welcome to social media. Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, all of it is designed to get your life out there, to be loud, to to exist. And if you're not on social media, oh my goodness, are you like a Stone Age caveman? Like who are you that you're not on social media? Like no one knows you. You're, You're not important. You just disappear into obscurity. Like, we, we so want to live a loud life, to prove that our life counts, to prove something, to show something, and we're all trying to do that in such a way that we don't live a quiet life. We don't even know how to live a quiet life. And if we're really honest, everything in our world since the foundation of the world and Satan who broke it and us listening is constantly competing for us to try to be louder, better, bigger, smarter, faster. There's there's no contentment. Now, some people say, well, yeah, but contentment can lead to laziness. I agree, it can. That's why we have the Bible and like 700 commands. (laughs) So we don't get lazy. (laughs) So we can see the heart of God in every command, and then by understanding those commands and understanding how they apply to our lives and living a quiet life in Christ as representative to others, as we do that, then we understand what living a quiet life really looks like, what it is and what it isn't. And I'm just telling you, this this message hit me square between the eyes as I thought through this. If you want to turn there, it's in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. It's in the New Testament. It's one of Paul's letters. Paul is writing his first letter to the church in Thessalonica. He writes two letters to the church in Thessalonica. Thessalonica is a trade city. It's, it's a major city. It's a busy city. It's a flashy city. It's a Roman city. It's, it's like Bloomington, right? I mean, it, it's got everything you could want. And, and everybody's... And so Paul is writing. He's been writing for... For multiple chapters to this church in Thessalonica, Paul is writing this because he's trying to get them to see in the midst of everything you've got going on, in the midst of all the busyness in Rome and everything that's happening, he looks and he says, I just want to give you some simple advice. And as he closes out his letter to them, he gives them this. So look in chapter 3, verse 12, back up to chapter 3. This is what Paul says. He says, and may the Lord cause you to increase and overflow with love for one another and for everyone, just as we also do for you. So Paul gives a key to the quiet life. The key to the quiet life is to stop focusing on ourselves and to focus on others, the brethren, because he says one another means the church, that's the one another, And then he says, and then beyond the one another, then also everyone else, the lost, the people that aren't a part of God's kingdom. 
that, that don't know God. Like, he says, my prayer for you is that love and your surrendering of your life and, and others' lives being lifted up, that is what I'm praying for will increase and overflow in you beyond anything. And yet in our culture, it's all about getting mine. Being independent. Not dependent. Which we're going to see in a moment. And he says, hey, we did this for you. What did Paul says, what did we model when I brought... Our, our church planting team, what did we model to you? He, he modeled a quiet life, a life of sometimes he worked making tents, sometimes he took some of the money that got, came into the offering so that he could preach more and do other things, but they just lived ordinary lives teaching the Bible to people. Then he goes on and he says, may he, that's the Lord, Jesus, God, make your hearts blameless in holiness before the God, before our God and Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints, amen. He says, I want you to understand this love so deeply and practice this love so deeply that it transforms your entire life and how you live. And he's like, it's going to look weird because it is not the way the world in Thessalonica lived. It's not the way our world lives today. Matter of fact, the world will discourage you from giving your life to others, just like Satan discouraged Adam and Eve from giving their lives to God because the enemy's trying to convince us that we're owed something, that we're entitled to something, that, that I get it, what I've earned. When the Bible says you've earned death and it's only God's grace that's given you anything and if you understand that, then you, you understand the trap and the trick of the world and you understand what it means to live a full, abundant, and quiet life. And so you can give that to others free, which is what Paul did when he came. And he says, I want you guys to understand your heart can be blameless in holiness, not because of what you've done, but because of what Christ has done on your behalf. And if you walk in that, then you can walk before and be ready for Christ to come back. We just sang, like a bride waiting for her groom. I'm getting ready to go to a wedding today after this. I don't get to take a nap today. That's fine. I'm going to a wedding of a couple that I've been doing their premarital counseling for weeks because another believer from another church called another believer me in this church, he's a deacon in a church in Tennessee, called me and said, hey, I've got a niece who's getting married and they have no counsel, but they want counsel. Would you meet with them? And, and through the process, I spent multiple weeks sitting down with them and they were so teachable, so hungry, realized the mess of life and trying to figure this out. And, and their uncle's going to do the wedding. He, he got licensed as a minister so he can do their wedding. And he has represented Christ in this broken family. And, and it's just this beautiful picture of the gospel and how the church submits to one another out of a love and a fear for Christ. And we give our lives so that others can see Christ. It's, it's a beautiful picture of that. And then Paul says this as he finishes the book. He says, finally then, brothers. He says, look, I'm praying for your love for one another and your love for everyone. And that's biblical love, which we'll see in a minute, not worldly definition of love. Because the biblical definition of love is very different than the worldly definition of love. Because the worldly definition of love is, what have you done for me lately? What have you done for me? It's calling God to do stuff for us where the biblical definition of love is I owe nothing. I give all because God gave all. 
And so he says, finally then, brothers, he's talking to Christians, we ask and encourage you in the Lord Jesus. Now we're asking and encouraging you, but it's not for our own benefit. It's in the Lord that as you have received from us how you must walk and please the Lord. Remember, he doesn't say how you must run a sprint. He doesn't say how you must go crazy. He's like, no, as you just walk and please God, it's just simple. He says, and as you are doing, he says, and you guys are doing it. Don't get distracted from just the simple everyday walk of life, pleasing him. He says, do so even more. Walk and please God even more. Just do simple even more. For you know what commands we gave you through the Lord Jesus. <laughs> like he says, there aren't a bunch of new commands. It's real simple. And we have helped you walk through the Old Testament to see which commands you should still be doing. Like we don't do any of the sacrificial commands anymore because those have been fulfilled. Jesus paid the price. He, so we have Jesus, the Lamb of God. We don't have to go get lambs and sacrifice them. He fulfilled the law. Once a law has been fulfilled and paid for, you cannot be tried again. Oh, that sounds familiar. Yeah, that's because we get it from the Bible. Our legal system is based on biblical principles. You can't be tried again, double jeopardy. No, it's been paid for, it's done. So he says, you know the commands that we've given you. The commands about how to love one another. He says, you know how we've taught you how you walk with one another and please and love God and love one another. Look at what 1 John says. 1 John 4.1 says this. Dear friends, this is the Apostle John writing again to a church, to the body of Christ. Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to determine if they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. So John is looking and he's saying, look, I'm telling you that there are a lot of false prophets. And he gets ready to define this in the next couple of verses. There's a lot of people running around saying what love is. We just had a month of people running around saying what love is. It's not what God says is love. That's not me mad at them. It's not me like cursing them. It's just biblical. God defines the terms of how we have a relationship and how we're supposed to relate to one another. And if we believe that as Christians, it should be reflected in our lives. And so he says, dear friends, you can't just believe everything. Oh, I love you. I love No, dig a little bit. Satan came and said, does God really love you? And, and in the innuendo that Satan gives in the Garden of Eden when he says, does God really care about you? Does he really love you? That innuendo that he gives is saying, I actually love you more because I'm telling you the truth that you want to hear. That, that's the subtle bait and switch that gets us every time. We're looking for that truth we want to hear. And when somebody gives it to us, we're just like, gobble it up. Instead of pausing and saying, is, is that really true? It might be, but like, I want to know what God says is loving and caring. So he goes on. He says, you are from God, little children, and you've conquered them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. You don't need to fear. You need to just know who God is. They are from the world. Therefore, what they say is from the world, and the world listens to them. It's like we're shocked that our culture's going down the tubes. <laughs> He's like, what are you shocked by? It's the world doing their version of love 
And people go, yeah, that's my version of love. And then they all agree on the version of love. Christians should be doing the same thing. Unfortunately, we look more like the world in how we practice love than we do the Bible. And what God says. He goes on and he says, We are from God, John says. We, plural. Anyone who knows God listens to us, and anyone who is not from God does not listen to us, for we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of deception. There is a spirit that's trying to deceive us to lead a busy, distracted, crazy, people-pleasing, God-pleasing all the time life, and God sent his son to quiet us <laughs> so that there, I can't do anything. I'm in trouble without him. John goes on to say, dear friends, just like Paul says, let us love one another. He's talking about the body of believers there. Because love is from God and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Again, he says, anyone who loves according to how God loves. Not just, well, I say the word love, so that means I'm from God. No, go back. He said there's a spirit of deception that's trying to lead you to a version of love that's not biblical. It's going to lead you to a mess in life, not a quiet life. I can't tell you the number of stories I've heard in the last month of people's lives that are in complete disasters because at some point relationally they decided they were going to do a different version of love than what God said was loving. And, I've, I, and it just heard another one yesterday. And, and, and it's like, I don't just sit back and go, yep, see, I was right, or yep, see, God was right. I just, my heart breaks. It's like, really? He goes on and he says, the one who does not love, love the way God loves, does not know God, because God is love. In other words, where do you get your definition for what gives you energy, for what you do, for what is loving or not loving, caring, not caring, for what you should be doing, not be doing. He says that definition is actually the being, the whole being of the Trinity of God. He is love. It's reflected in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Mutual submission in three separate persons, but one mono, monotheistic God, one Godhead. That's crazy. But it's exactly what scripture lays out. He says, God's love was revealed among us this way. Look at what he says. He goes, if you really want to see what God's love looks like, John says, I'm going to give it to you. God sent his only, one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. Notice he doesn't say, God sent his one and only son in the world to die for you so you could have the life you always dreamed of. That's not what Paul said. Paul said you're going to walk in him, walk through Christ. He says he sent his son so that we might live through him because if, here's the deal. If we're not living a quiet, surrendered life in Christ, then what we're doing is we're actually killing ourselves. We're, we're dying, not actually living. He goes on and he says, love consists of this. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's the payment, the substitute for us that we deserve. Dear friends, if God loved us in this way, we also must love one another. Loving people is really boring. 
It just is. It's not like fancy. It, it, I mean, if you think about it, like loving a baby is not exciting. It's exhausting. It's, it's like, they, did you not hear the pastor's sermon? He said, lead a quiet life. Just be quiet. Sleep through the night. <laughs> like, Babies are the epitome of they can't care for themselves in any capacity and all they do and the way they can communicate is scream at you. And you don't know what they want and they don't know what they want. That's all they do. And you're like, I don't know what I do. That's not it. This isn't it. The diaper's clean. I don't know what's wrong with you. Like, that's us. That's why he says little children to us here. That's who we are. That's why the Holy Spirit has to actually take our prayers and perfect them before he presents them to Jesus who takes them to the Father. Because our prayers sound like, that's what they sound like. And the Holy Spirit takes that, that groaning, he picks us up, and he's like, oh, you little baby, it's okay, we'll figure it out. He's got a dirty diaper. He did it again. You know, we got to clean him up. That's what... John is laying out, and instead, we're all about wanting to be little gods. We're all about becoming something so that we don't have to be dependent on God, his church, his family. Like, we all want to, I'll show you. He goes on and he says, we must love one another. No one has ever seen God. Moses was the closest one to, to actually see God the Father is what he's saying there. God the Father. When he passed by and he hit him in the cleft of a rock and barely saw the glory, the Shekinah glory of God. That's why God sent Jesus, who is the physical representation of Christ. And then he says, if we love one another, God remains in us and his love is perfected in us. See, the way to lead a quiet life is to just, I don't know, like go to work and provide an income for people that don't deserve it. Because you worked. You put in the hours. They did it. You little being. What do you think? You just exist and I can give to you? I'm the one that put in all the work. It's mine. That's what God did. That's, he, he put in all the work and continues to not destroy us when we deserve it. He goes on. He says, this is how we know that we remain in him and he in us. He has given us or given assurance to us from his spirit. He's provided another family member to encourage us. <laughs> to, to spur us on and remind us, okay, the Holy Spirit's my counselor, my encouragement. I go to the word. The spirit helps me to see who Christ is, see the spiritual family, surrender my life, to see who Jesus is. And we have seen and we testify that the father has sent his son as the world's savior. In other words, we can't save ourselves. We can't live a loud enough life. We can't do enough for climate change to save the climate. I hope you know that. We can't. Like God can make, I don't know, a dozen volcanoes go off and we're done. There will be no sun. It happened in the late 1800s. I've told this story before. If you look it up, there was the summer that never was. The entire Midwest froze. There were no crops snowing in July because three volcanoes went off at the same time in the late 1800s. That's how frail, three volcanoes. You know how many thousands of volcanoes there are and like places that can erupt in the world? And three went off and shut us down and famine spread all over. We think we, and God's like, just 
live a quiet, surrendered, focused life on me so that people who are busy trying to solve everything and do everything and experience everything can just slow down and go, oh, there's Christ, it's God. And that's why I get up the next day and do is because of what he's done, not because I'm trying to get. He goes on, he says. And we have come to know and to believe that love that God is for us, that God is love. He says it again. And the one who remains in love. Oops, sorry, I got a little click happy here. And the one who remains in love remains in God and God remains in him. If you continue to remain in the love of God, if you believe in Christ and say, I am a mess, I'm a disaster, and that's why I have grace. That's why Jesus saves me. That's communion. Like, do you realize how simple, I almost called this sermon the simple life, but that's not what the scripture said we're going to look at in a second. So I used the quiet life because that's what the scripture referred to. But do you realize how simple communion is? It's literally grape juice and bread. Like two of the most simple, wheat and a squeeze, like you squeeze, squeeze a grape and crush a grain of wheat and it's like, oh, this is amazing. It's like, no, it's been done for tens of thousands of years. This isn't amazing. It's just stuff. Like it's normal. That's what God does. He takes simple things and he makes them amazing. He causes them to be things that transform us and remind us of how big he is in the midst of such tiny things. A grape and a wheat grain. That's it. He goes on and he says this. In his love, love is per- in this, love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. He goes, if you want to be confident in your faith and you want to be confident about what's coming someday, and you don't know what's coming around the corner for the United States. And is inflation going to get us? And is there going to be a famine and all this kind of stuff? He says, just remain in my love. Because then whatever happens, it doesn't matter because you know where you're going. And you know that the people that you've shared with and talked to about Christ will have a chance before they hopefully pass to cry out to him to be saved. Like, like live that quiet, simple life. And then he goes on and he says, that's how we have confidence in the day of judgment for we are as he is in this world. We're going to look at that in just a second. How was Jesus when he was in the world? There is no fear in love. Instead, perfect love drives out fear because fear involves punishment. So the one who fears has not reached perfection in love. We love Because he first loved us. Most of what drives us is our fears. The one thing that sells news, any news, conservative, liberal, middle of the road news, is panic and fear. It sells like hotcakes. It's always on the front page. When's the last time that the front page article said, the sun came up today? Yay! And a whole article on how the sun comes up every day. No one would read that. Why? Because we're all about being distracted from just the simplicity of human life and and creation and a God that's keeping it all together. And we want to be distracted. We want to see fear and panic and go, but not me. I'm not there. I'm good. I've prepped and I got a bomb shelter. I'm good to go. Like, 
It's not wrong to be prepared. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying, what's your motive behind it? Is it so that you can love or so you can just survive a little bit longer? And John says, our motive and Paul's motive, our motive has been to try to bring the love of Christ into the lives of people as simply as we could do it. Walking place to place to bring the message. This is what Paul goes on to say in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3. He says, for this is God's will. Underline that. I've used this passage before. I have so many college students that come to me and ask me, what is God's will for my life? And I always tell them, you don't want to know that. They're like, no, no, I really do. I said, no, 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 you don't. Probably. You might. Let me check. Because really the question we want to know is, what is God's will for my life is, well, what career am I going to have that makes me happy, that gets paid well, and I can go on lots of trips and do what I want to do, and, and the person I'm going to marry is going to be awesome. They're not going to be like Gomer in the Old Testament. She was a disaster. You know, like, not going to be like Solomon, and I'm one of 700 wives. No, 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 I'm going to have the perfect, like, that's my will. Like, when we ask what's God's will, what we're really asking is, will God really give me what I want? Versus What is God's will? What does he want? Maybe I should check in and then ask him for that. Hey, I I want what you want. And then just leave it with him. Like, here's what I think you want. Okay, I'll wait. We're just saying about waiting. He goes on and he says, This is God's will for you, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality so that each of you knows how to control his own body in sanctification and honor, not with lustful desires like the Gentiles who don't know God. That is a mouthful right there in that passage. You can take out the word sexual immorality and put in any kind of immorality you want in there. What Paul's communicating is to the Thessalonians, sexual immorality was a huge issue in their culture, not like ours today. It was a huge issue. It's still a huge issue, but there were other issues too. Paul could have written anything that they were dealing with there. He chose this one. But the goal of your life and my life is sanctification. You know what sanctification is? Becoming more like Jesus. That's sanctification. It's becoming more like he was. And he said, Paul and John both said, I want you to become more like Jesus. Well, then how was Jesus when he was in the world as a human walking around? Look, he says, not lustful desires, not trying to get what you want like the Gentiles. This means one must not transgress against and defraud his brother in this matter, in the matter of using one another for our own lusts. He says, because the Lord is the avenger of all these offenses, and we also previously told you and warned you, don't behave like this. Don't ask what's in it for me. You want to know why people keep switching churches all the time? Because everybody's asking what's in it for me. And every church is saying, here's what we have to offer you. Instead of saying, well, have you talked to the other church? Have you talked to them about your spiritual life? Are they teaching falsely? Is there something like working together, loving one another, trying to put people in the right relationships and handing people off to other churches like we've sent people off to other churches and and receiving people from churches in a way that's like, Not stealing sheep, but is loving and caring to one another. But instead, because we're trying to find that will, that big thing, that next thing we're going to do, that next mission, that next, we refuse to just live a quiet, simple life, which is what most of the Bible is, is people living a quiet life and God interrupting them. That's like every story of the Old Testament. Job, what was Job doing? Living a quiet life making sacrifices for his family, raising crops, being a just righteous, loving, caring man. And God comes along and is like, yeah, let's, 
Satan comes along and says, yeah, Job will curse you. God's like, no, he won't. This guy gets it. He knows how to live a simple life. Oh, let me, let me go after him. So he goes after him. Job has no idea that this game is being played in heaven. He has no idea. He's just like, why is all this happening to me? I've been righteous. I've been good. I've lived a faithful, quiet life. I haven't tried to be someone special. I just, and he lost everything. And he still wouldn't curse God. He still cried out to him. And person after person, Jonah didn't want to go. We looked at this before. He didn't want to go to the Ninevites. He was just living a quiet life as a prophet in, in his home area, like Bloomington. I'm just living a quiet life. And God's like, okay, I want you to go over there. And yep, you're going to those boilermakers. You're going to go share Jesus. Go. It's like, I hate those boilermakers. I want them to boil her down all the time, not boil her up, right? And literally, he walks in and preaches the worst message ever, which we talked about. And he goes in, he's like, God's going to kill all of you if you don't repent, and it's the God of heaven, Yahweh, goodbye. And he just leaves, and they all repent. It wasn't like he came in and like lived a loud, I'm the, I'm the amazing prophet, and I came here, and He's just like, I got sent here because a fish puked me out on your land and I don't even want to talk to you. And God still used that. He goes on and he says, for God has not called us to impurity, but to sanctification, to become more like him. Therefore, the person who rejects this idea of sanctification, of becoming more like Christ, of leading a quiet, surrendered life where God's called you, He says, therefore, the person who rejects this isn't rejecting man, but God, who also gives you his Holy Spirit. He says, it's so easy to to reject God and think that we're walking with him and we're really rejecting his authority and his reign and his quiet stillness over our lives. Because we're doing something important, something big. The most important thing we just read that you can do is to love the brethren. And to love the people that God's placed in your life. One of the most amazing things happened yesterday is my daughter and her son-in-law were traveling home. They stopped at a rest stop. And here they are in the car and they're getting out. They have to stop to feed the baby and, you know, because they can't feed the baby real food. Mom has the food. So, you know, they have to stop and do that. And all of a sudden, Greg Botell is there with his grandson and both grandpas and are there with the grandson, and Greg walks by, and he's like, what? And turns around, he's like, Miles. It's my son-in-law's name. And they look at each other like, just the encouragement of the brother, both living a simple life, both traveling back to Indiana, just simply traveling. Hello! And there's this wonderful, beautiful moment of, like, encouragement and wow and Greg, his, he sold us our home, and that home's been a place of ministry, a place where we raised that daughter. And now, like, you think of all that plays into that, of just living a quiet, simple, surrendered life. And God just throws relationships together, and you're just like, wow. So Paul goes on, and he says this in 4.9. He says, about brotherly love, I don't need to write, or you don't need me to write to you Because you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. He's like, look, I don't need to write a bunch about how to love each other. You got the whole Bible. Read it. It'll it'll teach you how to love people. It's all there. How to love people with harshness. How to love people with gentleness. It's all there. Just read the scriptures. It shows who God is. God is love. You'll see it all. He says, so 
if we have all that, then it's like, okay, well, if you don't need to write to me anything else, how do I do it? Like, I read the Bible, but how do I do it? Paul knew that was going to be the question, so this is how he answered. And, and uh, Paul knew that was going to be the question because he had answered it earlier in another book. Look at Romans 12.1. He says, Therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, what God has done for you, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing. That's sanctification to God. He says, this is your spiritual worship. It's not raising your hands and singing and doing something flashy. He said, the ultimate act of spiritual worship is to simply get up in the morning and say, this body, yours. I I don't know what we're going to do today. I think I do because I've got a job and I'm supposed to be there at eight. But beyond that, I don't know what's going to happen. So, like, it's just simple. And then he says, that's actually your spiritual worship. Like, that's cool, great spiritual worship. Then he says, do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We're going to have to renew our mind or the world's going to conform us. We have to say, you know what? What God says about living life and doing life is better than what the world says. I'm going to listen to him. I'm not going to be renewed by Facebook and renewed by Instagram and I'm renewed by my email and renewed by all this stuff. I'm going to be renewed by God. It doesn't mean those things are evil or bad, but most people run to those things because they're trying to get a sense of life and renewal and purpose. And then they just make us more miserable because people never put their worst on social media platforms about themselves. They always try to put their best image of themselves. Christ gave us the worst image of himself on a cross. He goes on, he says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And if you do that, then you'll be able to discern what the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God is. That, that's, then you'll know how to love people properly, how to love your child, how to love your neighbor, how to love the body of Christ. But see, we take the world's definition of love and then we go around and look for people that are doing that definition and look for people that have Jesus' name put on it and we say, that's love because it looks like what I want versus saying, no, what God says is loving. Then he goes, do not worry about anything. Ha! Yeah, I'm sorry, that's what Paul says. Paul says back in Philippians, he says, so how do I live this life that, that God wants me to live? Paul says, well, the first step is don't worry about anything. I don't think Paul lives in this world because there's a lot to worry about. I've heard like, I mean, there's been at least a dozen things in the last 24 hours I've had to worry about. So like a lot. What Paul's saying is he's not saying don't be uncaring about things. He's saying don't worry. Don't let it consume you. Be transformed by what God says. Give it to him. He says, don't worry, but in everything through prayer and petition with thanksgiving. He says, when you pray and petition, is it really from a place of thanksgiving? Or is it a place from, well, if I'm thankful, he'll give me what I want. So I'm going to act real thankful and, oh, God, you're awesome and all this kind of stuff. And then you're going to do this, right? Or do you just come before God and you're like, I want to give you my prayers. I want to tell you what I want. But I just want to mainly tell you, thank you because you're awesome and you gave me another day to breathe. Like, just thank you. That's, that's all. And here's these small prayers and petitions that sound like a baby screaming to you, Holy Spirit, take them, perfect them better than this, and then give me your will be done. Whatever it is, I'll take it. He goes on and he says, 
let your requests be made known to God. God wants to hear your request. Parents, when they hear a screaming baby, do not say, stupid child, shut up. Now, they might in, like, frustration. That's probably happened to every parent. But, but for the most part, there's a sense of, like, I want to go find out what's wrong. Like, I want to go to my child. This is what I've created. You don't think God has the same response? Now, if the baby's 18 and wants their diaper changed and still screaming and doesn't have a physical handicap, eh, that's a problem. He goes on and he says, and the peace of God, so if you don't worry, if you have prayer and petition and thanksgiving, if you make your requests known, then there should be a sense of peace after that. Because when you do that, all the thoughts you have are going to start to guard your hearts and minds because your thoughts are going to be on thankfulness and who God is and what he can do in heaven and that this world's broken and it's the mess that it is and it's not going to change. And he says, that will guard your hearts and mind in Christ Jesus. He goes on and he says this in Philippians. Paul says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, therefore, if there's any moral excellence, if, there's any, if there is any praise... Dwell on these things. Like, put that on your mirror or your bathroom, like somewhere. I memorize it by thinking of Thurplegrep, but that's a whole way that I think through it. It's an acrostic because I can't memorize scripture very well. And that's in the NAS, not the HCSB. But anyway, like, it means true, whatever's a good report. Like, Thurplegrep stands for something. It's the way I remember this passage. Because I need to remember it. Because I can be a complainer and I can be worrisome and all these kind of things. And I have to remember, like, no, I have to think on this. I have to dwell on these things. And then he says, do what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. And the God of peace will be with you. So how do we lead this quiet life? That seems really boring. Just focus on what's true. Just do what's honorable. Whatever's the most just, like righteous thing to do, you should probably do that or at least wrestle with it. Do what's pure. You know, look for what's lovely. Whatever's commendable, you're like, oh, yeah, that's good. Anything morally excellent, if you see something praiseworthy, yeah, dwell on those things. And instead, we're constantly chasing every news station. Susan challenged me a few weeks ago to stop watching the news. So I did. It's worked wonders. She's like the Holy Spirit. God spoke to me. Like, I, it, it does wonders for you when you just shut it off. Like, I'm not listening to you. I'm going to hear. I'm, I'm going to listen to my brethren. I'm going to listen to you. Like, I'm not going to listen to that. It doesn't mean I don't know what's going on in the world. It's just I don't need to listen to five people argue who don't have any of the answers and never bring up Jesus, which is the answer. Like, what do I think is going to happen at the end of an hour program? They're going to be like, and Jesus, we love you, and they all repent? That's probably not going to happen. <laughs> he goes on and he says... Do what you've learned and received and heard in me, Paul says. Remember, Paul and John both said, look at what Christ did. Look at how he lived. Well, how did Christ live? Luke 2.49. Joseph and Mary lose Jesus. They lose their son at age 12. I think that's hilarious, by the way. If you've ever left a child somewhere or lost them, be encouraged. Be of good cheer. They lose baby Jesus, not baby Jesus, 12-year-old Jesus. 
And they go and find him and they look everywhere for him. But guess what? They don't go to the temple to look for him because mom and dad are so spiritual they didn't even think to look for the son of God in his house. I'm just as guilty. Like, you're looking everywhere for the car keys. Well, did you look in the drawer? Uh, no. Well, they're normally in the drawer. Oh. Like, he goes on, he says, didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? Like, like didn't you know that, that I have, I'm, I want to be in his house? Like, don't you want to be here? Like, that's a loaded question. Like, how did you not know that I wouldn't be here? Like, did you think I was out partying? And like, son of God took a, you know, a little sowing his wild oats at the, you know, local brothel? Like, what? I'm 12. <laughs> he goes on and he said, but they did not understand what he said to them. They didn't understand fully, like, his deity and who he was, probably. Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was obedient to them. And his mother kept all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and people. And you've heard me say this multiple times. 18 years of Jesus' life from age, age to, from age 18 to 30, or 12 to 30, the most important years of a young person's life throughout all of human history, we know that verse, that's it. That's quiet. That is really quiet. That's like, what were you doing? Well, it was in my father's house. You know where you could find Jesus? In the synagogue. You know where you find him doing? Reading the scrolls because we find him doing that when he starts his ministry. That's the first thing he does. He goes to synagogue and asks for a scroll. And, and it's not like they brought it to him like, oh, yes. And they're like, oh, yeah, there's Jesus. He wants to read a scroll again today. Here's a scroll. So he reads Isaiah, <laughs> says, that's me. And then they try to kill him because <laughs> he claimed he was God. What a way to start your ministry. Like very simple, very quiet. And everybody's running. When he starts his ministry, how does Jesus start his ministry? He calls 12 guys quietly. He doesn't announce, he doesn't go to Rome and go to Caesar, doesn't go to Pilate and be like, who are your best men I could call to come follow the Messiah? He goes and gets like fishermen and tax, like the worst, like really, these are the guys? Yeah, it's quiet life, simple. They're, they're honorable guys that love the Lord. They come to synagogue. I see them all the time because they probably went to the same synagogues. And whenever I travel, they're always traveling with me, have been for, you know, three times a year. We travel to Jerusalem. When I look around, hey, there's Peter, there's Luke. There, Yeah, we're traveling together. We you did it all the time because the men always traveled three times a year. And I was faithful to obey all the Old Testament. So, yeah, I know these guys really well. They're really honorable, simple, faithful guys. They're fishermen's tact. They just do their job. That's who I'm going to call. And then he spends three and a third years pouring into them, doing just simple stuff. They're walking around, doing simple things. And every time people want him to do big things, he's like, nah, nah, I'm not, nah. And then, like, big things happen out of nowhere. Some woman touches him and gets healed. And he's like, I felt power go out of me. And the whole crowd's like, what? People, and even the disciples are like, people have been touching you all day. What do you mean you felt power go out of you? No, it's different. Someone touched me different. And the woman was like, it was me. I'm so sorry. I wasn't supposed to touch you because I'm unclean. He goes, well, you're clean now. <laughs> like, it's just simple life. Jesus didn't travel anywhere special. He didn't do any big stuff. He just lived a faithful, quiet life, which is like the most miserable thing today in our culture to do. Like, what are your plans? What are you going to study? Who are you going to marry? What are you going to do? What job are you going to have? I'm just going to serve God and love him and be faithful, work six days, rest one if I can, if I can find a job, I can work. And I just, I just want to be a faithful person to God. 
Have you ever seen the look on people's face if you tell them something like that? It's just like, that's nice. Like, they don't even know how to respond to you. Like, there's just no, like, it's because they're expecting doctor, lawyer, I got these big plans, and you're just like, no, I'm just, I just want to be a faithful husband, wife, friend, church member. And, and, and I just believe if I do that, God will open up opportunities for me that I just never saw coming. The people just show up at rest stops and be like, hey, and like, hey, and then all of a sudden we're on a new journey. That's my life. The story of my life and ministry has kind of been that way, of just being faithful and God saying, here you go, and me going, oh, okay, is that what we're supposed to do? I don't Turning down opportunities because the, the big one came, the flashy one, the big pay, and be like, no, I just want to be faithful. I just... He goes on, he says this. Jesus looks at Peter when Peter's talking about love and he says to Peter, remember this is Peter who spent three and a third years, Peter who he grew up with in Nazareth in the area of Judea. In Galilee, he would have known Simon. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved that he asked him a third time. This is the third time Jesus asked, do you love me? Peter answered yes the other two times. He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus didn't say, oh, that's just what I wanted to hear. Oh, yeah, rub the oil on my beard. That's, yeah. No, he looks at him. He goes, great. Then feed my sheep. Tend my lambs. Show me, Peter. Quit, quit being about you. Be about, stop fishing. <laughs> Go do something. Be a shepherd. He's like, I don't know how to do a shepherd. It's not complicated. <laughs> you, you catch fish and cut them up and eat them. Sheep you don't necessarily do that with as quickly. You have to care for them. And of course, he's talking about people. And then he says, I assure you, Peter, when you were young, you would tie your belt, walk wherever you wanted. I'm going to go here, and I'm going to do this. I got this mission, and I'm going to build this, I'm going to build this, you know, boat um, rental whatever. I'm going to go fish and build a fishing industry. And, but when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands, and someone else will tie you and carry you where you don't want to go. I promise you, if you get old, that will happen to you. I promise. It, it will happen at some point. They, they, they're going to tie you up. You're going to have an IV. It's going to be tied down, stuck to you. They're going to like, there's going to be things beeping at you and all kinds of stuff happening. You're going to be tied up. And you're not going to want to be there. I don't want to be here. Nope, you don't. It's just life. And he says, but when you grow old, You'll do this, and then he said, to signify by what kind of death he would glorify God. In other words, you're going to be tied up and die of crucifixion. History tells us Peter was crucified upside down because he didn't want to be crucified in the same direction as his Savior. After saying this, he looked at Peter. So he told Peter the truth. If you're looking for a good life, if you're looking for the big flashy, not giving that to you, do you love me? Then feed my sheep. Well, how's it going to turn out for me? Not well. <laughs> Well, and then Jesus says, will you follow me? And look at Peter's response. It's the same thing we do. We go to Facebook. Peter didn't have Facebook, so he just pointed to John. So Peter turned around and saw the disciples whom Jesus loved, that's John, following them. I think it's funny that John wrote this book and calls himself the disciple Jesus loved. Ha! <laughs> he loved me more, Peter. I love that. The Bible has a sense of humor. The disciple was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and asked, Lord, who is the one that's going to betray you? 
When Peter saw John, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about him? If I'm going to go through this, what about him? And Jesus responds, if I want him to remain until I come, Jesus answered, what's that to you? As for you, follow me. Do you love me or don't you? Are you only going to love me if I give you what you want and provide the life you want and the experiences you want and the stuff you want? Or am I truly the son of God who you saw die and come back to life and is feeding you fish right now when you couldn't catch any fish and you jumped out of a boat to swim to me and the boat beat you to the shore? Have you not learned anything? He looks at him and he says, will you just follow me? Like Paul said, just Thessalonian, Thessalonica, like just walk, walk as it pleases God. And then Paul wraps up with this. After he says about brotherly love, he says, in fact, you are doing this toward all the brothers in the entire region of Macedonia, but we encourage you brothers to do so even more. So how do we do it more? We saw all the simple things, renewing our mind, all the prayers, just simple stuff that people have been doing throughout all of human history in scripture. Here's what Paul says. He gives some real simple things. Number one, seek to lead a quiet life. So, so how do we love people? How do we do this big mission? How do, we, how do we do this? And he says, just seek to lead a quiet life. Now, a quiet life does not mean a life that's selfishly quiet. A quiet life doesn't mean quiet as in I'm not sharing the gospel. I'm not talking about God. That's not a, what he's saying is lead a life that's not drawing attention to yourself, but is instead quiet about yourself and big about God. That's the quiet life. The people want you to talk about you. They don't want you to talk about God. So I'm going to lead the quiet life about me so that I can talk about God. Then he goes on and he says, that's the first thing. Then he says, mind your own business. You want evidence that you lead a quiet life? How focused are you on John sitting over there when Jesus has told you to do something? How much does it bother you what everybody else has and what everybody else is doing when you don't have it? Paul's like, mind your business. God has given you a business. He asked Peter to give up his business of fishing and take on a new business. What is our business? Luke 29, he said to them, why do you seek me? Do you not know that I must be about my father's business? That's the King James Version of what we just read in the Holman Christian Standard. Jesus looks at his parents and he goes, did you not know I wouldn't be about my father's business here in the temple? I'm doing the business. <laughs> That's what I'm doing. We're to mind the Father's business. What's his business? Well, it's the scripture. It's loving one another. It's the church. It's telling people about him. It's, it's holding one another accountable and picking each other up when we fail and grace and mercy and justice. It's, that's the business. So when he says mind your own business, he's not saying the selfish mind your own business of, well, whatever people want to do is what people want to do and I don't want to judge anybody. That is not doing God's business. Minding your own business is saying, what is my business? My business is to talk about Christ. That's the business. I have to mind it. I have to take care of it. Then he goes on. Quiet life. Mind your own business. Three, work with your own hands as we commanded you. Isn't it interesting that we have found a way to finally come to a culture where it is so despicable to be someone who has to work with their hands? Oh, you don't generate passive income. I mean, that's the secret to life. That's the secret to everything is your investments and your passive income. Oh, you work with your hands? You know, it's interesting. We all think it's despicable that people work with their hands until someone has to work on our body with their hands, i.e. doctors, nurses. Then all of a sudden, we want some really good hands. 
And we're going to pay dearly for those hands. But the plumber, eh, it's just poop. He's not important. Work with your hands. Just, like, do stuff that offers something to others. Like, just simple work. That doesn't mean that we don't have big jobs that we use our minds. He said renew our minds, and some of us are better with our minds and our hands. But then he goes on and he says, why? So that you may walk properly in the presence of outsiders. You want to know why we can't reach this world for Christ? Is because we don't have Christians that will live this way. Everybody's trying to be loud and big and important and showy and flashy and this and that. And there's a generation of people saying, is there just... Are there just simple people who follow God that look like the Bible? Because this, this, all this craziness doesn't seem like the God of the Bible. Then he goes on and he says, don't be dependent on anyone. Now, he doesn't mean don't be dependent on the church because he just said love one another, be dependent on one another, care for one another. What he's saying is don't have an entitlement mentality. Don't have a mentality of I'm owed and, and I'm dependent. Like, Place yourself in a place where it's like, I want to be someone that provides for others, doesn't, not receiving all the time because I can't provide for others. Now, that doesn't mean we need to feel guilty if we have to be dependent. Paul, or I'm sorry, Peter was just told by Jesus what? You're going to be dependent. They're going to tie you up and take you where you don't want to go. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's that mentality of, well, it's just fine. I just, I don't have to serve. I don't have to provide. I'll just be dependent. Then he goes on, he says, we do not want you brothers, want you to be uninformed brothers concerning those who are asleep. So right after Paul says, how do we love this way? How do we lead a quiet life? He gives very specific things on how to lead this kind of life, which is completely opposite to our culture. He wraps up with this. He says, we don't want you to be uninformed brothers concerning those who are asleep. In other words, is it worth it? Is it worth it to live the quiet life? Is it worth it to mind my own business? Is it worth it to... Not be dependent. Is it really worth it? And he says, we don't want you to be uninformed so that you will not grieve like the rest who have no hope. Since we believe that Jesus died and rose again in the same way, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep through Jesus. For we say this to you by a revelation from the Lord. We who are still alive at the Lord's coming will certainly have no advantage over those who have fallen asleep. In other words, it's like whether John stays or whether Peter dies, it doesn't matter. It's like this... We're going to see him because that's what he goes on to say. And he goes, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the archangel's voice and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Like everybody you thought was, they're alive. There is life. When your life feels like it's dying, when you're leading this quiet, faithful life and it feels like all I get is death. It seems like everybody else has life. Everybody's having a great time. Everything's going well and I just feel like I'm dying more and more. Well, do you believe in a resurrection? Paul says, then we who are still alive will be caught up with them to meet them in the clouds or meet the Lord in the air so we will always be with the Lord. We're going to all be caught up together to be taken to the new heaven and the new Jerusalem forever. Paul says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. I hope that these words encourage you because we live in a world that does not want you to live a quiet life. 
And quiet doesn't mean boring. It doesn't mean you're not dreaming for God or asking God to give you a vision. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about just simply saying, Lord, I just want to do right, what's right in front of me today to honor you, to love you, to, to be faithful to you. Like that's just a quiet, and we just, we want to highlight all the big stuff. I tell people all the time, look, we're going to take communion in a minute. This is the most quiet thing. Again, a grape and a grain of wheat. It, it's simple. It's, it's a quiet. It's, the grape doesn't grow. You don't, you don't you go to an orchard and, you know, or a vineyard and hear it screaming. Like, this is so hard to grow. It just grows because it's a grape and it's connected to the vine. Same with wheat. And so we want to encourage one another as we take communion. That it should be our encouragement that, yeah, this is what Jesus did. He came, he lived a quiet, simple life. He came back to life. And one day it's not going to be quiet anymore. The archangel's going to come. The trumpet's going to blow. And it ain't quiet anymore. It's, it's on. But until that time, God calls us to live this quiet, faithful, surrendered life. And in the stillness, what does God say? God says, that's where you'll find it. Right? Be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I'm God. So this morning, let me ask you. Are you wanting to go to the communion table just to sit with your Savior and say thank you? Just to be still. Just to say, this life is worth it. You've given it to me. And I'm a mess. I'm a baby that screams and cries and I don't even know what I want. And yet you're patient with me and you love me and you pick me up and you care for me and that's the point of the gospel and then you ask me to mature so that I can do that for someone else that's our message this morning a quiet simple life not a boring life not a worthless life but a life that just finds joy and thankfulness in living for Christ in these simple ways see that's what communion is it's the realization that one day it's going to get really quiet for me. My body's going to stop. My heart's going to stop. There's going to be no more noise coming out of this body. And God says, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter the quiet. Enter your rest. Like, oh, yeah. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for communion and what it symbolizes, Lord, that it is the thing that sets us free to live this way, that we don't have to be tossed to and fro in the busyness and the mess of life. There are things to do. There's busyness. There are hard things. But, Lord, we find our peace in you and what you've done in communion. Lord's Supper is that reminder of your body that was broken for us, your blood that was shed for the remission of our sins for us. You paid the price, and then when we take communion, it reminds us that now we are your representatives. That we are to tell people the simple message and to live our lives in a way, like Paul says, that honors you. Lord, help us never to think that living a quiet life is worthless. It has great worth because you make every life worthy that surrenders to you. And so thank you, Lord, for this time. Thank you that in the midst of the busyness and chaos of our world, that we have something that the world doesn't and something that they desperately need and help us to be laser-focused on that. 
We thank you. We praise you. Because you tell us to present our prayers and our petitions with thankfulness. And so we thank you for this time this morning in your name. Amen.